Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig with details. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so very much for tuning in. My name is Ben, and peek behind the scenes here, we have been knocking out these guest episodes, haven't we? We really have. My name is Noel still. It remains that way. Um, yeah, we, we've had a lot of great guest experiences. We had Daniel Scheffler from Everywhere, and I, then we had our dear friend uh, Ryan Barish coming in and talking to us about uh, Jimmy Carter's little-known uncle, who was uh, kind of a war badass. Mm-hmm. And speaking of badasses, we are, as always, joined with our super producer, Casey Pegram. Give it up for him. But that's not the only person on the air with us today, is it, Noel? No, not the only badass on the air with us today. Yeah. We have Eve's Jeffcoat, whose name you have heard us shout out multiple times throughout the history of the show, and she's finally here <laughs> in the flesh as a human person, and we're so happy to have you. What a warm welcome. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Good. Uh, tell us a little bit about some of the shows that you do before we dive into this amazing topic. So another history show that I do is This Day in History class, and so that one is kind of a really small, digestible, little bite-sized episodes about history, uh, about an event that happened on that day in history or a person's birthday on that day in history. So the topics on that show basically run the gamut. Um, anything from science, tech, war, a lot of war, yeah. a lot of massive yeah, yeah, That's history for you, yeah. Yeah. But they're fun, little digestible, daily nuggets, kind of. It's a good way to start your day with, a, you know, what happened on this day in history. Yeah, yeah, and informative. I mean, just, just because a lot of those things are so, like, touching and mm-hmm. and deep and difficult doesn't mean that they're not they're not important to learn about of course and history never really ends this reminds us go ahead and 
push pause on this podcast, get thee to your podcast platform of choice, and subscribe not only to this day in history class, but also Unpopular. Eves, could you tell us a little bit about Unpopular? Yes. Uh, Unpopular is a show that covers a person in history for every single episode that resisted the status quo in some way. And a lot of people who resisted the status quo because that was what they were doing were persecuted for it. So that is also part of their story, but they did it and they did what they had to do nonetheless. So whether that that had to do with dress reform or whether that had to do with slavery and racism against people of color all throughout the the kind of imperialist uh, places in in the globe, um, just everything. So some of those people, like one actually who we'll bring up today was Chiao Jin, who was a revolutionary in China. Ah, mm-hmm. yes, because we have quite a tale ahead of us today. We do. This is something that you had told us about off-air, Eves, and it's, uh, I don't know about you, Noel, but it was it was news to me. It's the strange story of a book that's familiar to a lot of our fellow listeners here in the United States and abroad. And in its time, it was a huge success. That book is Uncle Tom's Cabin. And there's a lot more to that story than what you actually read printed on the page there, right? It's a deep, deep history that's behind Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I guess the reason that I find—well, I always find things like the way that language and words and books and ideas like that move across different nations and cultures is just very interesting to me, kind of how things morph um, so much and take on different meanings and context um, across cultures is already very interesting to me. So I found out that Chiu Jin, who was this kind of feminist in modern terms and a revolutionary in China, knew about Uncle Tom's cabin and read Uncle Tom's Cabin and had included some of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, in her own poetry, because she wrote poetry as well. And that just fascinated me. It's like, what? why was Uncle Tom's Cabin, what was it doing in China and how are they using it in China? Because you would think of Uncle Tom's Cabin having a very specific, meaning from a very specific point in time and in a cultural context, because it was about slavery. It was kind of this, you know, fist out against slavery and this ideas of abolitionism that were instilled in Harriet Beecher Stowe. Well, it kind of it was a pretty big deal of educating a lot of people that wouldn't have even paid attention to those plights and kind of having them understand a little bit more of the perspective of like what slavery really was about. And I think people kind of give it some credit for sort of pushing towards, you know, the war against slavery. Yeah, yeah. There's that famous but, like, not verified quote about Harriet Beecher Stowe saying that she was like, oh, look at—this is the little lady that started the Great right. War or but something Lincoln like that. that yeah, Lincoln, like that. Mm-hmm. Right. which is not verified. But it's, it's, <laughs> right, but it, was, but, it gives you the but idea. It, it does—it was so incredibly popular mm-hmm. when it came out. I think they had to leave the printing presses running, like, 24 hours mm-hmm. a day to print all—to to meet the demand. So it absolutely—at it, the very least— got people kind of hipped to what was going on and maybe would have kind of not been paying attention. Yeah. Number two, uh, number two most popular book of that century. Yeah. Yeah, to the Bible, I believe. Yeah, the right. Bible mm-hmm. is like, it's been hogging number one yeah. status for a while. Really? Now. And I think it's interesting that it was the Bible as well because people have compared Uncle Tom's Cabin itself to the Bible because of its story of redemption and this kind of martyrdom in the in the characters. And also to me, um, something I was thinking about in that juxtaposition with the Bible at number one and Uncle Tom's Cabin at number two was this idea of adjusting narratives to fit a certain rhetoric. Mm. So that's what was done with Uncle Tom's Cabin. But 
as we know to this day, that's the thing that's done with the Bible as well. For sure. I mean, and especially I think the term Uncle Tom has obviously been kind of co-opted as sort of a negative term of abuse. And there's all kinds of, you know, charge stuff behind that. But I I read that it was less to do with the book itself and more to do with the stage plays that kind of came out and reinterpreted and recontextualized. And they had to sell tickets. So they made it a little more prurient and kind of gross. Yeah. So the history of minstrel shows themselves is also another ridiculous, ridiculous history mm-hmm. that's very deep and very just, like, involved. And minstrel shows played a big part in popularizing this narrative of the fool, you know. Mm-hmm. And Uncle Tom was an easy target in that, even though that's not really what Uncle Tom was like in the book right. itself. And so just because of out of these these means of needing to make money, but also perpetuating dominant narratives of black people being inferior and white people being superior, that that was an easy way to do that. And th- that was what sold tickets. You know, that's what brought people mm-hmm. into their seats as well. So for anyone who doesn't remember this book from school, right? A lot of a lot of kids read this book in school. Uh, we have the the basic plot, right? Just the the nuts and bolts of the plot. Uh, This comes to us from a Smithsonian article about the real inspiration behind Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? So the the Beecher Stowe story is this. There are two enslaved people, and they're about to be sold off by the slave owner, a Kentucky farmer who's very much in debt. One of the characters is named Harry and flees with his mother north to Canada. The other... The character called Uncle Tom is transported down the Mississippi River. He is sold to a a terrible plantation owner in Louisiana, and he almost gives up, but he receives these visions that keep him standing steadfast. And then he encourages two other enslaved people, two women, to go north, but he is beaten to death when he refuses to divulge where they've gone. And then Tom's original person, the Kentucky farmer in debt, tries to buy him back, essentially, but the money comes too late. And then the farmer's son goes back to Kentucky, and because of the lesson the farmer's son learned, which is a little bit white savior if we're being honest, uh, he says, okay, I've learned I'm going to set all of my father's slaves free, and whenever you see this cabin— uh, think of Tom, who taught me to be a less crappy person, mm-hmm. essentially. But that narrative, that's, like you said, Noel, that's the book. That's not the stage play, right? Because things in the book were considered a little too uh, dangerous, right? That's uh, right. And what we're talking about today is a completely different version of this, again, recontextualized for a Chinese audience, yeah. uh, translated by the incredibly popular uh, Qing Dynasty translator Lin Shu. But even though we know the story as it was originally published, we don't pay as much attention to the story about the story, right? So what what's the origin here? What inspired Beecher Stowe? Where did it come from? So Harriet Beecher Stowe was a white American woman, and she was in— Obviously, this was a very turbulent period, um, a period of transition. This was around the the time of the Civil War, the time of the Emancipation Proclamation. And she was seeing all these people who were part of the abolitionist movement and was kind of on the fringes of the North and the South and saw the slavery and also saw the people in the North. I don't want to make it seem as if it was such a North-South division in terms of there were only abolitionists in the North and 
<laughs> only terrible slave owners in the South. Like, that's not exactly how it was. But she did, see, she did see both of those worlds, quote unquote. And so she felt compelled to speak out against the institution of slavery, which she thought was brutal and objected to. She wasn't the most, like, go-hard abolitionist or every, anything like that. But she was affected by the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which was that enslaved people who escaped to the North were supposed to be sent back, basically. Well, it basically said, like, anybody, everyone is responsible for doing this. Exactly. Yeah. And anybody, even if you didn't, weren't complicit in the actual owning of slaves, if you were complicit in this Fugitive Slave Act in terms of catching the slaves and sending them back, then you were also part of this terrible institution. And so she was affected by that Fugitive Slave Act, and she really wanted to draw the sympathy of Northerners by showing them exactly what the horrors of slavery were. And she also, um, a thing about her own personal anecdote is that she had a child who died who was 18 months old in 1849. And so she sympathized with mothers who were enslaved because obviously family separation is a huge part of the history of slavery. And she also wrote that she was divinely inspired. So the book was kind of written by the hand of God in one edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I, I have to mention here that one inspiration for her story was Josiah Henson, who was a formerly enslaved black man. And so that's important just because she didn't live through slavery. <laughs> so you know that a lot of people who were enslaved or who were formerly enslaved wrote their own stories but didn't get as much shine as she did because they were Black and they were formerly enslaved and she just had a different kind of access um, and platform. And so along with Josiah Henson, who wrote a memoir called The Life of Josiah Henson, formerly a slave, now an inhabitant of Canada, as narrated by himself, um, that was published in early 1849, which was just a couple of years before Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. In 1852. Yeah, yeah. And so Uncle Tom's character had a lot of similarities with the character of Josiah Henson and... She even wrote that Henson inspired the character along with a bunch of other people, you know, a bunch of other stories of people who were previously enslaved and who were abolitionists. It's interesting, too. She actually got a lot of flack of people saying that were against what she was talking about, like that this was all made up. Yeah. This was all overly emotional. There was no way that this stuff was real. So she, in response to that in uh, 1853, released this companion piece called A Key to Uncle Tom's Cabin, Facts and Documents Upon Which the Original Story is Founded, Together with Collaborative Statements, Verifying the Truth of the Work by Harriet Beecher Stowe. And so she, it was like a response directly to that. Yeah, and she had to do that because of all the pro-slavery advocates. And not all of these people were necessarily, you know, barnstormers about it. There were a lot of kind of milquetoast centrists, you know, who were like, yeah. hey, can we compromise on this? And they put out all these newspaper articles, I think, that inspired Beecher Stowe to respond. And they said stuff like, a few facts from Mrs. Stowe <laughs> and Uncle Tom mania. Well, I got something for you. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the people, too, just felt that slavery was justified. Like, there was nothing wrong with it. So if you imagine somebody having that perspective and viewpoint that, like, slavery is okay. What's wrong with it? What are you talking about? Why are you making it seem so horrible? They like what they're getting. They have a good lot. Um, then there is no reason for you to write a novel like this trying to awaken the consciousness of the people to what was so bad about slavery. Right. But if it's—that's that's the inherent— uh, disconnect, right? That's yeah. the logical fallacy there. They're saying, there's nothing wrong with this, so stop talking about it. <laughs> exactly. You know that what I like mean? It's like classic yeah. double thing. It's like, this isn't a problem, but if it is, no one must know about it. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, something else is going on deeper there, right? I think so, for sure. (laughs) Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. So Harriet Beecher Stowe published Uncle Tom's Cabin in an abolitionist newspaper called The National Era, and she did that in 1851. And then the next year, 1852, Uncle Tom's Cabin was published in book form. And so it was basically an immediate hit. Um, It wasn't one of those things that was kind of the slow burn up to the popularity of it. It was, you know, in its first five years in print, it sold more than 500,000 copies. Uh, It was the best-selling novel of the 19th century, and it it inspired—this part is funny to me—it inspired a bunch of Uncle Tom-branded merchandise um, in Britain, like Uncle Tom's shrinkable woolen stockings. It reminds me of The Passion of the Christ. They had, like, little nail necklaces that you could get at, like, gas stations. That always made me cringe. Shrinking? I don't know what the shrinkable part means. <laughs> Is it like a shrinky dink kind of situation? <laughs> I don't know. woolen stockings. But there were a bunch of things like that, too. Like, I imagine mugs. But the thing that's funny about it to me is because precisely because of that whole, the way that Uncle Tom, the phrase, is viewed now. Uncle Tom merchandise is a totally different thing yeah. now in this context than it was then. It just makes me imagine of, like, Imagine a store, an antique store in Savannah that just has a ton of racist memorabilia. Absolutely. And <laughs> just just for people, this isn't a term that I hear thrown around much anymore, but can just to catch people up, what is the negative connotation of that term? Okay, so the negative connotation of Uncle Tom is kind of a person being a quote-unquote good Negro, like somebody who's submissive, somebody who is compliant and willing to do basically anything. And like we said earlier, the the character himself, he wasn't that way. People viewed him as a martyr then, and he is more of a hero. You know, he's a protagonist and he's a positive hero. But the term Uncle Tom, because of the minstrel shows and the way that the white people who were producing these minstrel shows portrayed Uncle Tom's character as this fool, as a person who was an oaf, just bumbling about the stage, basically— They were, and I guess in their eyes, successful in making 
creating that character for Uncle Tom. For sure. And it's interesting, like, the first place I ever heard of Uncle Tom's Cabin was in the musical The King and I. There's a Mm. play within the play where some of the characters put on a production of Uncle Tom's Cabin for The King of Siam, Mm -hmm. um, which is obviously in Asia. And today we're talking about the way Uncle Tom's Cabin made its way to China and was hugely popular and also another version of that kind of, like, recontextualization and sort of, like, changing the narrative to fit the goals of yeah. the, you know, the culture kind of. Or even finding um, finding analogs. Right, If exactly. not changing the narrative. For I sure. Mean, seeing the universal via the specific, right? Absolutely. And I just think it's such an interesting story uh, mm-hmm. as far as like how this translation took root and what ended up happening with it. So we threw out some of these astonishing statistics, right, about the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the U.S. for sure, and we implied some of the, we alluded to rather, some of the global statistics. You mentioned uh, the merchandise was very popular in Britain, right? I think over over 1.5 million copies of Uncle Tom's Cabin were sold in just a few years after publication in Britain. This was a global phenomenon, and people weren't as worried about copyright laws. You know what I mean? So someone could just get a copy of this and make their own thing. They also had the agency to change it if they wanted, right? And they did. Whatever do you mean? (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so the novel definitely did really well outside of the United States. Um, As you said, in Britain, but it also did really well in France, and it did really well in Russia. And it's interesting, too, because in addition to China, which we'll get to in a second, it was also translated into German pretty much immediately. And by 1852, there were already 13 different German editions. So it wasn't just popular in other places. It was super popular in other places besides the United States. Um, After, In fact, after it was published in Germany, and I'm going to butcher this German word, so please forgive me, but there was a new genre of slave narrative emerging called Sklavengestichten. That's pretty good. I tried. For this know? show, that's I great. Oh, I can man. spell it really well. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're, we're famous for our butchery of uh, foreign words, so you did a great job. Thank you. Um, and, but those were slave stories. And so the condition of enslaved people in America was compared to those the conditions of workers in Germany. And also at that time, German immigration to the states was increasing. And so that comparison of German immigrants to African-American helped define immigrants' high status. And the Germans replaced that issue of race with the issue of class to make it fit their own narrative. And they sometimes even suggested that enslaved Black people in uh, in America were treated better than German servants were. And so a similar idea to that was also present in China. You know, the idea that As we spoke of earlier, how popular Uncle Tom's Cabin was in America, the way that Harriet Beecher Stowe positioned Uncle Tom's, it was kind of like a soft way of advocating for anti-slavery sentiments. And so the ideas that surrounded how that that idea moved in America were also translated to China. And so at the time, there was a lot of turbulence in China. Uncle Tom's Cabin was translated in 1901 in China. And it was published, and I'm going to attempt Chinese here, as Hey Nu Yi Tian Lu. And that meant Black Slaves Appeal to Heaven. And that was by Lin Xu, a translator, and also by Wei Yi. Mm. And they worked together on translating this novel. 
Lin Shu is a really interesting character. He was super popular during the Qing Dynasty. He translated things like Charles Dickens and yeah. Washington Irving. I think he did like up to 180 full-length books and everything from like short stories to essays into Chinese between 1898 to 1920. Um, and then, of course, one of his more famous ones is his translation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's interesting, though. He had like 20 assistants, and he didn't speak any of foreign languages at all. He yeah. only spoke Chinese, and he did this thing called tandem translation, which is super popular, where you would get – uh, what would be considered a lower class citizen who could speak another language because mm-hmm. to be able to write in Chinese like he could, he had to be in the highest echelon of society. That was a very highly educated, privileged position. This was also, this first translation was classical Chinese. Right. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a more elevated tone, right? Maybe, mm-hmm. I, I guess the attitude would be that it lends itself to slightly more poetic description. Well, it's neat. So what we would do for tandem translation is he would have the English speaker read him the story, translating from English to Chinese, and then he would hear it and do his own translation, like, in his head on the fly. So and there's the telephone the, game. The poetic yes. license, yeah. all these different things. And so I just want to say that, to point out the irony in this, is that because I do not read Chinese, I have to work off of a translations of a translation of a translation. <laughs> uh, um, so you can just imagine, you know, in playing telephone and thinking about translations, how much is already lost and just mm-hmm. what is not able to be said succinctly and accurately in a different language as compared to the next. On top of that, Lian Xu took his own personal liberties in telling the story Big of time. Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think he actually made a different character kind of the hero. He did. Yeah. So he made George Harris kind of the hero. And George Harris had this story of, you know, being here, fighting against slavery and slave owners, fleeing to Canada, and then going to Liberia to help found Liberia. And it's interesting because later this idea of Liberia becomes kind of a symbol in mm-hmm. the story of Uncle Tom's Cabin to Chinese people and that it is this idea of self-reliance. And so, whereas Liberia, the whole plot of Harris going to Liberia in America was looked down upon in terms of this idea of bringing the kind of back to Africa, taking all the Black Africans who were brought from Africa to America, back to Africa was something that was an idea that was going around at the time. Mm. So it was looked down upon in the book at that time. But later in China, Liberia operated as this symbol of self-reliance and liberation and freedom. And we know that this garnered attention in the U.S. as well, right? In the book Racial Reconstruction, Black Inclusion, Chinese Exclusion by Edley Wong, uh, there's there's this fascinating note where people begin comparing the different versions of Uncle Tom's Cabin or A Black Slave's uh, Appeal to Heaven uh, with other things like the the Turkish version, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and the Persian version. Uh-huh. And they start noticing some of these differences, mm-hmm. right? So we said the, the protagonist changes. Yes. The interpretation of Liberia changes. What are some other notable divergences of plot or tone? So I will note about 
people knowing about all these different translations in the United States, people did write about them. So they were aware that Chinese translations were happening. But it's funny because they weren't mentioning the anti-imperialist stances that were in those translations. They were just saying, <laughs> look at all these translations. Everybody loves Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin um, and <laughs> wasn't mentioning them. So that just made me think of that. But there's also a quote that I like by critic Leslie Fiedler. And he once said, for better or worse, it was Mrs. Stowe who invented American Blacks for the imagination of the whole world. So I think that can be a very grand statement. Like it's kind of, it can seem like kind of an overstatement, but it does get to that essence of how much of an international impact Uncle Tom's Cabin had. And so basically where most of the differences the divergences came in Uncle Tom's Cabin's translation as a black slave's appeal to heaven, which is just one translation of the name itself. But but that's pretty much how all the other translations go, whether that's a black slave's like cry to heaven. Cry to heaven, yeah. But it's all along those same lines. Is that it had this anti-imperialist, anti-US, anti-white, uh, if you would call it, and kind of a pro. We have this unified consciousness of being a quote-unquote yellow race or a quote-unquote yellow people uh, and forming this kind of collective consciousness around the fact that whatever was done was in service of proving that point of that. We're going to be slaves pretty soon, just like, you know, the African-Americans in the United States if we don't do something about the way that this white encroachment and— U.S. policies, U.S. policies. The opium wars had just finished. And so there was a lot of carving up of China and just like hands in China and the 21 demands and just all of this imperialist and international and white, you know, domination and cultural changes that were happening. And I I will say that the other thing about the novel that changed was the inclusion of Christianity. So that was a big thing, as I said— Harriet Beecher Stowe said that the novel was divinely inspired, written by God's hand or however she said it. But Lean Shu took out a lot of the Christianity that was involved in the story itself because that didn't fit. That didn't—we don't need that to prove our point. But that's literally Uncle Tom's character. He's devoutly Christian in the book, right? Well, it was—so for for them, it was a protest novel. Right. So it didn't Mm -hmm. really have to be about literature. It wasn't about art, you know, that— uh, later, it wasn't even really looked at as an artistic work at the time. It really w- did just function in a political means. And so it wasn't until like the 1980s when people started to recognize it and value it a little bit more as an artistic work, mm-hmm. as a good work of literature, even though it's not like the greatest work no, of I mean, literature. A lot of people write about it that it's pretty poorly written. Yeah. I mean, that's the criticism I've seen a lot. It's yeah. not a super page turner, yeah. if I'm being honest. Right. It's it, really long, too. And it's, yeah, it's, it, but it is the first American novel translated into Chinese. That's yes. another accolade we can hang sure. out on, on there. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. 
the big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. So it's fascinating to see this because taking this to the modern context, just as a quick aside, we see something very similar happening with U.S.-produced feature films now because the market in China is so mm. huge. There's so many people uh, that a, a film could be an utter failure here in the U.S., but then it can make all the money back and more in China. The problem is one of narrative and cultural interpretation. Mm. So the authorities in the Chinese government will take films that uh, appear in one version in the U.S., like the Avengers or literally in, insert any blockbuster film here, and then there'll be a different version that shows in China. Uh, one of the weirdest examples of this, or one of the most apparent, would be the Pacific Rim series. Uh, you know, giant robots fighting giant kaiju monsters, right? Uh, because it did so well in the Chinese market, the sequel, Pacific Rim something or other, they don't call it just number two, it is heavily, it, it like heavily leans into uh, themes that would be considered by the authorities more appropriate for a native Chinese audience. And the question then is, at what point are we telling two different stories? So to take it back to Uncle Tom's Cabin or A Black Slave's Appeal to Heaven, at what point does Len Shu's story become something fundamentally different from Beecher Stowe's? So yeah, at the time, the situation in the U.S. with Chinese immigrants and laborers was very interesting because it was in the 1880s, 1882 to be specific, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was signed. And so the Chinese Exclusion Act was a federal law. There were a lot of other laws already, but this was a federal law that banned Chinese laborers from immigrating to the U.S. And so that came at a time when white people, specifically in the Western United States, but people were, you know, and th this was the time of the gold rush as well. So there was a lot of competition and Chinese immigrants were coming to the U.S. looking for gold, but also taking a lot of low-wage jobs. And so companies were paying people low-wage jobs. And the white people who were working with these companies saw that, and that was driving their costs down. And they were viewing this as, quote-unquote, an invasion mm. of Chinese people into the United States because they were coming in. They were willing to work for these low wages. And they already had all of these ideas about what Chinese people were and what Eastern Asians were to them, which was kind of this this inferior people who were primitive, who had special powers, who, you know, they just, I mean, go back and look at some of the propaganda oh, art sure. from that time. You yeah, know. absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. It's out of control. It's crazy. So that's what the sentiment around Chinese people was in the late 1800s. Going into the early 1900s, I think the Chinese Exclusion Act wasn't repealed until 1943, Wow. Yeah, so it was a long time. It was set to begin, it was set to go on for 10 years in the beginning, then it was renewed, and then it went on until 1943 when it was repealed. 
So there was all this competition, what, what they thought was competition from these people who they felt was invading. And I just want to point out here, too, that that is not isolated. Like, that sentiment is still present today in the United States um, about feelings about Eastern Asians and about Chinese people and this anti-Chinese sentiment. So those sentiments extended even beyond Chinese people to the Eastern world. Uh, it shifted to the Japanese a little bit later. There was this idea of general yellow peril, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was a xenophobic fear of this made-up danger that Eastern Asians posed to the Western world. They were seen as the other. And so back in China, we were nearing the end of the Qing dynasty, which ended in 1912. And so Emperor Guangxu was ruling at the time, though Empress Dowager Cixi was the one who was really in charge. Mm-hmm. And so, as you said earlier, Lin Xu translated a lot of books, and also he has expressed in other books that anti-imperialist sentiment as well. But Uncle Tom's Cabin was a big one, and it was only the second foreign novel he translated. And he really showed the character of Western societies and showed that there was good literature outside of China. So that's kind of an initial impact that it had on people, just presenting this idea of slavery and this kind of writing and literature to people in China who weren't necessarily familiar with this kind of work. So even though it was sort of tailored a little bit to be more appealing or to kind of like push forth this agenda, Mm -hmm. it did still accomplish something pretty powerful. Yeah, 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 it did. It was, in terms of power, I mean, Lian Xu himself, that work and his work influenced other people to translate many, many more foreign works. So that's important, you know. Mm-hmm. It, he also influenced the development of modern fiction in China. And, <laughs> yeah, so it's really interesting to think about this guy who <laughs> who didn't know foreign languages was that influential. This is something, I was going to save it for off air, but this is something that still happens today. There is a famous uh, Rumi translator, a uh, professor, I think, working out of Chattanooga named Coleman Barks. Uh, he does not read nor speak Farsi nor Arabic of any sort. Uh, what he does is probably similar to Lin Shu's uh, Lin Shu's process in some ways. It's it's just fascinating though when you think about it. Like a translator who doesn't speak the language they translate. You know, yeah. It gives us it gives us these um, these dramatic reinterpretations. There's a ton of room for error, but it also can give us a unique sort of thematic fingerprint because we're we're hearing this through the mind of several people and in their when they're writing toward a goal which Lin Shu certainly is mm-hmm. I think it's a sincere goal I don't think it's like crassly manipulative we we can see that they're they're honing in on the focus I really want to read uh, their version mm-hmm. of this now and then maybe go back and read the original and see what's different when I learned to read Chinese. <laughs> and I have I have Harry Potter books in Chinese at home that I got when I was in China because I was like, these covers are awesome. And how can I not have Harry Potter in Chinese? Mm-hmm. Are the titles like wildly different? Sort of like the... Uh... I can't read them because I'm not... I don't know kanji. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't it... know kanji. I'm trying to learn. Yeah. Um, but the covers, the cover art itself yeah. is... They look the like Harry and Hagrid look more Chinese than they do British, Got it. you know, uh, yeah. on the covers, and they're just so fluid and flowy and blue and magic. They look so magical, <laughs> and I'm already a fan. I, if you can't tell, I'm a fan of Harry Potter, but I'm already a fan of the 
the U.S. art. Um, and so I got those, and I was just like, one day I'm going to learn to read Chinese. I'm going to figure it out and learn to speak Mandarin, you know. Yeah. I'm going to figure I, it out. But anyway, um, I think, too, what you were saying, Ben, that was a, an aside. I think, too, what you were saying, Ben, about that translation of a translation also makes me think that it just makes the world feel a little bit smaller mm-hmm. because I don't know another language. And language is a huge barrier for me when I travel somewhere or even am in America and I'm in a place that's a community for people who don't speak the English language. And I'm an outsider. And I I have guilt around that. And so, you know, knowing that you can still communicate with people beyond language barriers, I think it's some some kind of inspiration in the translations of the translations that Lian Xu was doing. I like that's well put. As someone who's also slowly learning uh, Mandarin, uh, that that is well put. I've got a couple of the books you mentioned. And yeah. speaking of side notes, you probably already know this, Eves, but uh, there are tons of unofficial other Harry Potter books yeah. written by and for the Chinese market. Yeah, uh, they're not they're not approved by J.K. <laughs> I don't know what happens, but I know there are some, there are allegedly tons of them. Yeah. So if when you and I get our Mandarin down, <laughs> we might never have to stop reading Harry Potter. I got a few of those titles right here if you're interested. One yeah. is called Harry Potter and the Leopard Walk Up to Dragon. Uh, <laughs> Harry Potter and the Chinese Porcelain Doll. Stone Cold. Uh, that sounds Harry, kind of scary. Harry, really scary. Harry Potter and the Big Funnel. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is that a Dementor? Is it a tornado? Uh, it's, no like a, it's like a Unclear. symbol for imperialism. Oh. oh. <laughs> here, here we go Obviously. into even deeper ripoff territory. This is from Russia. Tanya Groder and the Magical Double Bass. <laughs> and it's, yeah, one. on the cover, it's like a Harry Potter-esque young lady riding on a flying double bass and holding like a, <laughs> like a magic stone in her hands. And you can, you can learn more of that. Uh, there's a mental floss article, yeah, right? Yeah, that's where I'm finding Harry Potter in Calcutta. <laughs> an Indian version. Oh. And Harry Potter and the water-repelling pearl. <laughs> water-repelling? Yeah. Wow, what a quality. Yeah, well, here, check out the art. See, it's he's uh-huh. the a pearl. I think is down there repelling. Yeah, that's quite <laughs> exactly. a pearl. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that that may not be the best example of cover art out of these knockoffs, but these titles are great. They are so good. You can totally find that article on mental floss. And man, uh, this has been really educational on so many levels, and really fun to have this conversation and uh, to have you on the show, Eves. Thank, Thank you. you so much for joining us. Yes. Thank you very much for your time. Now, Eves, uh, for everybody who is rushing to check out your shows on Popular and This State in History class, uh, where where should they go find you? So they're all on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And so you can look up Unpopular um, on all of those platforms. And you can also look up This State in History class on all of those social media things. <laughs> And while you are on the internet, if you have not had a chance to do so yet, why not check out our show? Uh, we're we're lousy on the internet. We're all over the place. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Twitter. You can hang out with our favorite part of the show, your fellow listeners on our Facebook community page, Ridiculous Historians. And if you feel like hanging out with me and Ben individually, you can find me on Instagram at Brown. And you can see my various uh, adventures and misadventures uh, here and abroad at Ben Bullen on Instagram. You can hear my terrible attempts at one-liners at Ben Bullen HSW on Twitter. Huge thanks again to you, Eves, for being here with us today. 
Thanks to our super producer, Casey Pegram. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis, always here in our hearts. Uh, thanks to Jonathan Strickland, the quizster, for once again not showing up. But I feel like our time is uh, is running out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are overdue. But it's, uh, it's one of those kind of live in the moment, embrace the now sort of things. We never know when... Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, will uh, show up. That's why you can hear us speeding up a little on our outros. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're trying to get past that point. Thanks also to Alex Williams, who composed the stone-cold hit that you hear at the beginning of every episode of Ridiculous History. Thanks to Gabe Luzier. Thanks to Ryan Barish. Uh, thanks to Lin Shu. And hey, Noel Brown, thanks to you. Thanks to you too, man. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency, where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch, so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.